Let's talk finance. Wouldn't it be convenient to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one spot? Yahoo Finance does just that. It consolidates your portfolio views and offers expert analysis, making it easier to manage your investments. Let's not beat around the bush. You want to grow your portfolio, fight inflation, pay off debts, and achieve financial freedom. Yahoo Finance provides the news, data, and tools to make that happen. You may think you've covered all the bases, savings, researching, and investing smartly. But to truly excel, you need Yahoo Finance in your corner. A holistic perspective is crucial for success, and Yahoo Finance ensures you have it. With a massive community of over 90 million users monthly, Yahoo Finance is here to guide you on your path to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. We all make mistakes, decisions that we regret, things we'd like to do over, like not buying Bitcoin when you first heard about it at $1. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. At times, therapy has helped me and my loved ones in many ways. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. With the right guide, you can discover effective strategies to minimize distractions and truly connect with your needs, setting the stage for a more balanced life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched up with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge take a moment visit betterhelp.com gold today to get 10 percent off your first month that's betterhelp help.com slash gold the peter ship show Well, as you can tell by popular demand, the Peter Schiff Show music, the theme song, is now back. I figured out a way to incorporate uh, the music into uh, the new uh, live video format. So people have been uh, messaging me about it, that they missed that music. Well, now the music is here. And, you know, another thing that I'm going to be doing, uh, I mentioned that I'm trying to up the quality of the podcast, uh, you know, gotten in some new equipment. You know, I am intending on building out my studio here, but a COVID-19 has kind of put that on the back burner. Uh, you know, you could barely get anybody to do anything on the island right now. So I'm going to have to wait a while before I can do that. But another thing that I am doing is I am introducing sponsors uh, to my podcast. You know, I haven't had any sponsors at all. Although I did, when I did the Peter Schiff radio show, I had sponsors, I had commercials, but then when I moved to the podcast, I just never bothered to do that. But I really want to treat this uh, podcast more as a business and and not a hobby, because I think as a business, uh, it could be a lot bigger, and that's my goal. I want to have a bigger audience, and uh, all the big podcasts out there, they all have sponsors, so I might as well do the same thing. So the first sponsor... Uh, for the Peter Schiff Show podcast is ExpressVPN. So I want to thank them. They are uh, sponsoring today's uh, podcast. You probably don't think much about internet privacy on your own home network, but ExpressVPN will secure your privacy and protect your information. So visit expressvpn.com slash gold 
and get an extra three months free on your one-year subscription. So ExpressVPN slash gold, the slash gold, that's me. So that lets them know that you heard about it on my uh, podcast. Uh, But, you know, I mean, all the big podcasts, as I said, have sponsors. Joe Rogan, of course, is the biggest of them all. Uh, And, you know, he's got sponsors. In fact, he just announced that he's moving over to Spotify. And by the way, uh, I am in the process of scheduling my fourth appearance on the Joe Rogan Experience. So I don't have a set date yet, but it should be coming up. I'm going to be doing it remotely. I mean, normally I do the Joe Rogans uh, in studio in uh, Southern California. Uh, But given uh, the COVID-19 and everything, he's having uh, some of the uh, interviews remotely. And since I really didn't have any plans to visit Southern California, we're going to do a remote uh, version. So uh, I'll let everybody know uh, when that is scheduled, as soon as it is, uh, so you can make sure and, and listen to that. I'm excited about going on that show. He's got a much bigger audience now. It's like every time I come on the show again, he's even bigger uh, than he was the last time I was on. But hopefully I can emulate some of that success and, and bringing on sponsors and really treating this thing like a business uh, will, uh, will help me achieve that. Anyway, so getting into uh, uh, today's topics, uh, first of all, you know, I want to talk about some of the uh, data that came out yesterday you know we got again every thursday you know we get the uh unemployment numbers and i didn't really pay much attention to them obviously before uh this recession started and we keep getting these huge numbers and this week was no exception we ended up with almost two and a half million two million four hundred and thirty eight thousand was the number of people who lost their job in the most recent week. And of course, you know, as we're getting closer and closer to when we're supposed to be reopening the economy, and in fact, some of the states now are gradually opening things back up, where are the jobs? You know, why are we still losing millions of jobs per week, right? If we were so close to this, you know, turning the economy back on, wouldn't some of these companies be getting a jump on it? Wouldn't they be bringing back some of their workers or at least stop laying them off? I mean, the fact that we can still keep losing jobs by the millions uh, in the span of a week uh, just shows you that, you know, we've got a lot more to this downturn uh, than, than people think. But we also got the other data points that come out on Thursdays, which, you know, I think are a lot more important than the, the mainstream uh, media seems to think. And those are the balance sheets, Fed balance sheet, and the weekly money supply numbers. So the balance sheet was up a modest $103 billion on the week. And I say modest because we've had some much bigger jumps in weeks past. But again, remember that QE3 was $85 billion a month, right? So, I mean, we routinely beat that every single week uh, with QE4. But also uh, more important about uh, the last week is we brought the balance sheet now over $7 trillion for the first time. It's 7.037 trillion is now the size of the balance sheet. I mean, so this is a big number. Remember, the peak from QE3 was four and a half trillion. And the lowest we got it was a little bit below four trillion, 3.8-ish. We've now about doubled, almost doubled that balance sheet since the Fed went back to QE, which is an amazing feat. I mean, not like 
in a good way, in a really, really bad way. And clearly, I mean, we could be at 10 trillion this calendar year. In 2020, we could have a $10 trillion balance sheet. And the, the crazy thing about it is nobody cares. Nobody is worried about this. You know, people were worried initially. I mean, I remember in 2009, 2010, when the Fed first launched QE1, right? And again, it wasn't QE1, it was just QE because people didn't know other than me that they would keep doing them. But there were a lot of people who were skeptical about it, who were worried, even though it was much smaller than what we're doing. Now, even Larry Kudlow, I talked about that. I made that YouTube video with the Star Wars theme. Kudlow was worried. He didn't like what the Fed was doing. A lot of people, I wasn't the only one. I mean, I was one of the only ones that was warning about the financial crisis, like going on television, talking about the housing bubble and what was going to happen. But once I was proven right on that, once we had the crisis and the Fed on land, uh, you know, uh, announced this program and when all the government spending increased, I wasn't alone in criticizing it. I was the only one that was talking about inflation and how this was very dangerous. But a lot of those people that were worried about it back then, they're not saying anything now. I mean, they're totally good with this, uh, even though it's it, it's much bigger. And again, the, the reason is we got away with it last time. We are so complacent, you know, because of the fact that we did QE1, 2, and 3, right? And nobody thinks there was a problem. No one thinks we got the inflation. Everybody thinks it worked. And so they have no qualms about doing it again. You know, I, I, I happen to watch a old uh, speech of mine on YouTube. And then I tweeted about it. Somebody had reminded me about it. And so I started watching it again. You know, and this is a lecture I did uh, down at, I think, at Auburn University, the Mises Institute, uh, and Henry Hazlitt lecture in 2009. And it's not on my YouTube channel. I, I, I actually tweeted out the link today on their channel. I want to, because it's got like 450,000 views. Most of those views were from 10 years ago. It was a pretty popular YouTube video back in the day when I recorded it. And, you know, it is an entertaining lecture. I mean, I was laughing myself. I mean, I'm watching what I said myself nine years ago, 10 years ago, and I'm actually laughing out loud myself because a lot of the stuff I'm saying is pretty funny. So it's an entertaining hour. But the interesting thing about it is really I could be given that lecture today, right? Not 10 years ago. And, you know, a lot of the things that I said were going to happen are happening. A lot of them are happening now. But one of the things that I got wrong in that was the timing of the, the migration of inflation from financial assets to consumer prices. I really expected a much bigger increase in consumer prices. I was worried that we would have price controls, that we would have such a big reaction in consumer prices to what the Fed was doing, that we would have price controls uh, during Obama's first term. Clearly, that didn't happen. But it could easily happen uh, during um, Biden's first term. I mean, everything I was worried about is going to happen. It's just happening 10 years later than I thought. But I did talk in that lecture about how the Fed was going to ultimately be buying up all the bonds. And now they're doing that. I mean, they're buying not only treasuries, but munis and corporate bonds. All the stuff I was warning about. It's just that we managed to kick the can down the road for an entire decade. But we're repeating all the same mistakes. Everything I said a decade ago 
is probably more relevant today because the crisis is now a lot closer because there is no way. Yes, I, you know, I didn't anticipate that we'd be able to delay the consequences as long as we did. But there's no way we're going to do it again. But what everybody else thinks is that because it worked last time, it's going to work again. Because we got away with QE1, 2, and 3, well, we'll get away with QE4, even though it's much bigger. So even though the deficits under Trump and the bigger deficits that are coming under Biden, or even under Trump if he gets reelected, even though these deficits are much bigger, in fact, I'm looking online, you can see the national debt is now almost $25.5 trillion. We just hit $25 trillion last week. We're almost halfway to $26 trillion. I'm sure we'll hit $26 trillion probably sometime next week. I mean, these trillions are just adding up pretty quickly. But even though we have much bigger uh, increases in uh, government spending and deficits and money supply, I didn't even mention that. You know, we got the money supply numbers yesterday as well. Another uh, $225.4 billion in new money in one week. That follows the $198.9 billion that we got last week. When you're talking about a quarter of a trillion, the Federal Reserve conjured into existence a quarter of a trillion dollars last week. This is money that didn't even exist, and now poof, it's here. The Fed waves its wand, and there's a quarter of a trillion trillion in dollars that wasn't here. Now, is the Fed adding any value to the economy? No, the Fed doesn't produce anything. Not one widget, right? Not one product, no services. There's no value associated with that money. It's just new money that's spent into the economy. And all it is doing is adding claims on the stuff that's there, right? The Fed doesn't increase wealth. It just creates more claims on the wealth that's there. And who gets the claim? It's whoever gets the new money, right? Somebody gets a check from the government, and now they have a claim on some of the goods and services that exist. Well, at whose expense? At the expense of somebody who already possessed that claim, somebody who already had some money. Now that money buys less because somebody else gets to buy something with the new money that the Fed created. Now, sure, you know, we can still suck in imports. The dollar hasn't collapsed yet. All of that is going to happen, right? Everything, go back and rewatch that talk that I did. And just imagine I just did it because all the stuff that I was saying about what we were doing wrong following the 2008 crisis, we're doing all the same stuff now, only bigger following this crisis. And... I think back then, I did not believe at that time, back in 2009, I did not believe that the Fed was going to succeed in reflating the bubble. I mean, I knew it was going to try. I mean, it was in the process. It was printing all this money. I just assumed that they would fail. Instead, they succeeded, right? They, they reflated a bigger real estate bubble than the one that popped in 08, and they inflated a bigger stock market bubble than the one that popped in 2000. You know, and now they both popped again. In particular, the real estate bubble, commercial real estate is already uh, getting killed. Uh, and so we're, we're repeating those mistakes on a grander scale, except we're doing it in an even weaker economy because we never really recovered 
from the recession of 08, we papered that over with a bigger bubble. So instead of correcting the imbalances that existed, we made the imbalances bigger. We went even deeper into debt. And so now that this bigger bubble has popped, the Fed is back to you know the drawing board doing exactly what it did uh, back when I gave that talk, only printing a lot more money, running much bigger deficits. And so this time, there is no way to kick this can. Right? We are going to now experience everything that I assume we were going to experience back then, only much worse, only a much deeper collapse, even more inflation uh, than, than we had then. But what I want to talk about now, I read a couple of uh, op-eds last couple of days by two very different people, right? Paul Krugman and Stephen Moore. Right? And so these guys are supposedly at the opposite side of the spectrum, right? I mean, Steve Moore is a Republican, a libertarian, a free market guy. He was an advocate of the gold standard at one time. Uh, he walked that back a bit when he was in consideration for being on the Federal Reserve Board. Uh, but he's known as a very conservative, free market, libertarian guy. And he's obviously a Trump supporter now. Um, and then you got Paul Krugman, right? I mean, Paul Krugman is a complete Keynesian, right? Big government guy, big Democrat, you know, Nobel laureate, right? Or Nobel Prize winning economist, uh, which means he basically knows nothing about economics. In fact, I often joke, you know, if you could lose a Nobel Prize for, for being really dumb, for saying something really stupid, you know, he would have lost his Nobel Prize a long time ago. He would be short many, many Nobel Prizes. You know, he, he'd owe a bunch of them. But of course, you never have to give him back. I mean, I'm not even sure what he got it for. Uh, but I'm sure whatever it was, uh, I would disagree with it. But in any event, uh, they're very opposite guys. Yet they're on the exact same page. When it comes to the Federal Reserve, right, both Paul Krugman, who supposedly believed in sound money and the gold standard, and Paul Krugman, right, who doesn't believe in the gold standard at all, right, but these two guys both want the Federal Reserve to print a ton of money, keep on printing, right? They're both advocating government deficits, right? I'm sure uh, Steve Moore would prefer the deficits resulted from tax cuts, but he doesn't care. He just wants deficits. So even if it means more government, that's a trade-off he's willing to make because he wants the Fed to print more money, right? Because uh, Steve Moore, according to him, the, the prosperity killer is deflation. That was his article, his op-ed that I read. It was like, the real prosperity killer is deflation, right? So we can't have deflation. So the most important thing is that the Fed saves us from this menace of deflation. Now, of course, I've talked about that this on the podcast. Deflation is not something that we have to be saved from. Deflation doesn't kill prosperity. Deflation causes prosperity, right? At least, you know, when he's talking about deflation, he's talking about falling prices. Falling prices are what we want because when prices go down, we buy more stuff, right? Which is good. We want to have more stuff. The cheaper, the better, right? And, you know, I know people say, well, that's bad for business. No, it's great for business because their costs come down, right? Their costs are also prices. And when your costs come down and your prices go down, you can maintain your margins. But what you can do when your prices are down is you can sell more stuff. So you do more volume. You make more money selling more affordable merchandise. 
So deflation is not a prosperity killer. Now, the mistake they make, right, they go back and they look at the Great Depression of the 1930s, right? Oh, prices went down. Yeah, prices went down. That's not what caused the depression. They want to act like because prices went down in the 30s, that's why we had a depression. No, that's not why we had a depression. It's the depression that caused prices to go down. But prices going down weren't the problem. They actually mitigated the problem. They cushioned the blow for people to see that, you know, the cost of living went down. To try to blame the depression on the fact that prices went down, that's like, you know, blaming uh, uh, the rain on, on wet sidewalks. The sidewalks are wet because it rained. It didn't rain because the sidewalks are wet. So when you say that we had a depression because prices went down, you got it backwards. Prices went down because we had the recession, the depression. And, you know, the same thing happened. I talked about that on one of my podcasts not too long ago uh, when I saw the airfares, right? Airline prices, ticket prices just collapsed, right? I, I, was ta- I, I think, you know, I mentioned on the podcast, I saw like a $3 or a $6 fare from San Juan uh, to, uh, to Boston. I mean, just crazy price, right? I mean, ridiculously low prices. That was the knee-jerk reaction. You know, all of a sudden, nobody was flying, so the airlines just cut their prices, right? And that actually hit the CPI. One of the reasons that we got such a low print was because of the collapse in in airfare. Well, anyway, I happened to go on the internet a couple of nights ago because I want to fly back to Connecticut. I've been here in Puerto Rico, and I want to come back in early June and go back to Connecticut. And so I'm looking... Uh, online. And sure enough, the airfares have gone way up. I mean, there are more than they used to be, right? The the coach fares that I was looking at uh, were anywhere, you know, I could get a, there was sometimes you can get a flight for, I think the cheapest I saw was $185, uh, $185 one way, but most of the flights were $225, $250, uh, That's not what they used to be. If it wasn't a holiday, right? So obviously, if you want to go Thanksgiving weekend or something like that, yeah, they jack the fares up. But to just go on a normal day, the cheapest fares one way coach were usually around $115, $125. And there were plenty of them that you could find $150, $175. Mostly those are gone. And a lot of the flights, there used to be JetBlue had a direct flight uh, to Hartford. Sometimes you could take that because it's not that bad. They canceled all those flights. They don't exist. The only way to get to Hartford is you have to connect and it takes forever. But the business class seats, you know, I like to fly business class. Uh, Delta is the airline I typically fly. They had generally the best business class uh, going between New York and, and, and Puerto Rico. And the last time I flew, I, I checked, I looked at my receipt. I paid $345 one way for business. That tells you how cheap it was because coach, I probably could have got a coach ticket for 150, but I paid 350, 345 for business, right? The cheapest business fare I saw for Delta was like a hundred, I mean, $1,800, like 1800 and change. And there were barely any flights to choose from. Most of the days there weren't even any flights at all. I mean, they had flights every day before, so they have completely reduced the flights. Even coach on Delta, I couldn't even find a one-way coach fare on Delta for less than $1,200. In fact, on the one flight I was looking at that had $1,800 business, 
The coach was almost $1,700. There was only like a $100 difference between coach and, and business. So what's happened is after the airlines, you know, you know, took a lot of planes and put them off in the desert somewhere, right? And they, they're storing them and they canceled all these flights. Now the prices have gone way up. I said this was going to happen. The knee-jerk reaction is that prices went down, but now prices are way up. Now, are consumers better off now that the prices are way up? Of course not. They were much better off before they went up. Now, of course, most people still aren't flying. So what difference does it make, right? If you weren't going to fly anyway, it doesn't matter what the price of a ticket that you're not buying is. But if anybody has to fly or they want to fly, it's a lot more expensive now than it was before COVID. And it's way more expensive than it was in the immediate weeks after COVID. But according to like more, the problem isn't that airfares went up, it's that, that they went down, that, that the falling price was the problem. No, it wasn't the problem. It was a consequence of the problem. But for the economy, are we better off now that we have to pay more to fly? Of course not. But those are the realities of a falling standard of living. But the reason that Steve Moore is trying to set up this phony boogeyman of deflation is he wants the Fed to print more money. And so the way to justify wanting more inflation is by saying that deflation is terrible and we have to prevent that and we need these, uh, 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 the Fed to print more money. Now, of course, what Steve Moore really wants is the Fed to help Trump get reelected. And he thinks the best way to do that is to prevent the stock market from going down, prevent the real estate market from going down and just print a bunch of money to finance all these tax cuts or increases in government spending to put a Band-Aid on this cancer long enough to to reelect Trump. But it is amazing to see a guy like Steve Moore, who's a nice guy. I know him, you know, personally, I've met him many, many times. We we speak at a lot of the same conferences or we did before they all started uh, to get canceled now that people aren't going to them. Uh, but to see him advocating for massive deficit spending and money printing because he thinks that we need to be saved from the ravages of a falling cost of living. We don't need to be saved from that. We need to be saved from big government. It's the increased government spending that is the problem. And monetizing that debt, paying for that spending by printing money is an even bigger problem. And uh, Steve Moore should know that. But no, instead, he wants uh, Keynesian stimulus and he wants to pay for it by the Federal Reserve printing money to supposedly save us from collapsing prices that aren't even collapsing. I mean, A, it's not even a bad thing, but it's not even happening. Yes, it happened a little bit initially, but, you know, that's going to go away. You know, once all the going out of business sales are finished, well, I mean, once you deplete the inventory and you don't restock it, Prices are going up, right? What's happening in the airline industry is just a, a taste of what's going to be happening in the overall economy. And so the problem for the Fed is what happens when we have an inflation problem as measured by the CPI? What can they do about it? Nothing. How are they going to fight inflation? How are they going to raise rates? They can't. How are they going to shrink their balance sheet? In order to raise rates, they got to start selling uh, treasuries. They got to start selling muni bonds. They got to start selling corporate bonds. How are they going to do that? When now everybody is counting on the Fed to buy all this crap, how are they going to turn around and sell it? And who the hell is going to buy it? And at what price? So they have really put themselves in a box. 
But now, you know, I want to get to, uh, to Paul Krugman, right? Because Paul Krugman, he wrote his article. And Krugman is now being critical of Trump and other Republicans who are anxious to get the economy going again, right? They want to reopen. And Krugman is like, oh, this is reckless. Uh, you're risking causing a depression, right? Like the biggest mistake we could make is go back to work too soon, right? We don't want people going back to work uh, because they might get sick, right? We might spread the virus. So in order to uh, make sure that we don't infect more people, then we got to stay sheltered at home longer, right? And if we come out of hiding too soon, that is the risk, right? And the Republicans are just, you know, they don't care. They're just trying to make it look good so before the election. And so they're risking depression by bringing people home too quickly. What Krugman wants is everybody to stay home and not work and have the government to keep on printing money. Because he was saying that fortunately, you know, it's fine. Nobody has to work. Nobody has to do anything because we could just send out all these checks. We could print all this money and, and give it to people. And so Krugman's not worried about that at all. Somehow that's not a problem. You know, there's a big difference between working for money and just having the government print it. You see, when people go to work, they do something, at least most of the people, right? Not the government workers, but the people that work in the private sector. You go to work and you are producing something. You're helping to produce some good. You're helping to provide some service that has value. And what you're paid is a percentage of that value that your labor is helping to create. So for adding something into the pot, you now get money that allows you to take something out of the pot, right? We all put in with our work and then we get to buy some of the stuff that we help produce, right? Well, if everybody just sits at home and doesn't produce anything, but the government just replaces their lost income by printing money, there is a big difference there because you're getting money and you're not doing anything. You're taking out of the pot, but you put nothing into the pot. So all that's happening is we're bidding for stuff that's not there, right? So Krugman doesn't think that's a risk at all. He is not worried about the consequences of not sending people back to work and about continuing to run the printing presses, continuing to pay people to do nothing because he doesn't see a problem with that because he loves government spending. He thinks government spending creates wealth. And right now, I guess Stephen Moore is on the same page because they're both advocating for the same policies. Nobody is out there on either side advocating sound money, saying, no, 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 this is wrong. We can't do this. We can't print all this money. We can't run these deficits. We have to cut spending. We need sound money because nobody wants to deal with the short-term economic and political consequences of doing the right thing. So instead, we do the wrong thing. And because we got away with doing the wrong thing from 2008 until you know the present, people think we can get away with doing the wrong thing indefinitely. Well, we can't. You know, the people who were worried about the problems in 08, 09, like me, we were right. We were early, but we were right. The people who weren't worried were wrong, right? They don't realize they were wrong because the consequences were delayed. And because they were delayed, guys like Krugman think that they were vindicated, right? Because nothing bad supposedly happened. And guys like me were proven wrong. Well, what's about to happen is going to prove guys like me right.
Anyway, before I get into the questions, and we got plenty of questions, uh, which I've been answering on Friday, I want to talk a little bit more about our sponsor, uh, ExpressVPN. Um, so I want to make sure, you know, um, ExpressVPN, I mean, the, the, the thing about it is your, um, uh, your, your um, ISP, your internet service provider, right? When you're just browsing the internet, your internet service provider knows every site that you visit. I mean, everything you do, you leave a record of that with your internet service provider and that's, that information is there and they have it and they can supply it to any government agency that's requesting it. I mean, you have absolutely no privacy whatsoever when you are browsing the internet. But if you use ExpressVPN, that's different because what's happening is everything you're doing is being routed uh, through other IP addresses that are shared with multiple users. So what actually happens is all of your searches becomes anonymous and nothing you're doing is actually going to be traced uh, back to you. And in addition, everything that you're doing is 100% encrypted. All of your data is encrypted. Uh, so it's protected uh, from hackers or, or things like that. And, you know, I know they have uh, maybe some of these uh, uh, VPNs services that I think you can get for free, but, but they're, they're really no good. I mean, you basically get what you pay for and you get a lot of value uh, when you're using ExpressVPN. In fact, one of the things I found out when I started using it, because I'm here in Puerto Rico, and these are just extra benefits when, when you have something like this, but I'm in Puerto Rico and there's a lot of content that I can't access from Puerto Rico. I go there and I try to look at it. It says it's not available in my area because for some reason it's not licensed in Puerto Rico. But when I'm browsing and I click on the ExpressVPN icon, which is on, you know, on my laptop now, and now I start browsing through that, all of a sudden the computer, you know, they don't know that I'm in Puerto Rico. I mean, they think I'm in Florida, wherever I happen to select. And so now I, I can access content that uh, other words I, I wouldn't, otherwise I wouldn't be able to access. And also, you know, when I'm in Puerto Rico, sometimes I do stuff and it defaults me into Spanish. Right, because they figure, hey, I'm in Puerto Rico, I must speak Spanish, which I don't. But if I'm browsing using the ExpressVPN and I, I'm pretending I'm in Florida, I don't get any of that. Everybody assumes that, that, that I'm speaking English. So I think there's a lot of benefits uh, to uh, having this, uh, this service. So anyway, uh, so to protect, to protect your online activity today with the VPN that I trust to secure my privacy, visit the special link at expressvpn.com gold. And you can get three months free on a one-year package. That's expressvpn.com gold. Expressvpn.com gold to learn more about the first uh, sponsor of the new and improved uh, Peter Schiff Show uh, podcast. Anyway, let me go to the Q&A. First question. Uh, this one comes from the UK, from Brett Saletto. Which exchange is the best to buy gold stocks on? I am in the UK and have purchased my stocks on the TSX to avoid the US dollar, or is it better? Look, you know, it doesn't really matter what exchange you're using because it, it, the gold stocks, they're not, it doesn't matter what currency they're trading in, right? It's ultimately the value is the gold that they have and their earnings. So whether you trade it on the TSX, on the New York Stock Exchange, Australia, different uh, exchanges, you're buying the same thing. You're going to get the same return regardless of what exchange. So look, you know, depending on the stock that you want to buy, 
see where it's got the most liquidity. I mean, obviously, you know, for Americans, if it's on the New York Stock Exchange, you're probably going to get a better uh, rate. You don't have to do the FX conversion versus going and buying it in, in Toronto or something like that. But once you own the stock, it doesn't matter where it's trading. It's the same company. Uh, and obviously, you know, the, the currencies reflect the price but not the value of the shares. But of course, I still am a big advocate of my mutual fund, the Europe Pacific Gold Fund. Hey, by the way, thanks to all the people who are buying my gold fund, I have the fastest growing gold fund uh, in the country right now as far as the percentage gain in the assets under management. So the assets under management are going up because the stocks are going up, right? So gold stocks are rising, so that is causing uh, the fund to gain value. But most of the value year to date has come from people adding money. People are buying my fund. But, you know, they're not necessarily buying a lot of other gold funds. I mean, most gold funds are also getting inflows, although there are some of them that have had outflows. Uh, but mine is unique. I mean, the, the, the inflows into my gold fund are much higher than we're seeing. I think I'm about triple the inflows of the average gold fund. Uh, and I think that as the price of gold really starts to move and these gold stocks really shine even brighter than they are now, I think we're going to see even more money coming into the sector, which obviously is very, very bullish for the price of these gold stocks. And by the way, you know, when you're buying gold stocks, you're actually buying the gold that's in the ground, right? You're buying physical gold. These gold mining companies have the gold underground. They haven't even mined it yet. And, and the key, right, is a lot of this gold the market is assigning no value to that gold because they don't think it can be profitably mined because maybe uh, the price of gold is $1,700 an ounce or $1,735, but maybe the cost of mining it is $1,800 or $1,900, right? So oh, it's worthless, right? What's the point of spending $1,800 to dig up a metal that you can only sell for $1,700, right? Well, what happens when gold is $3,000? All of a sudden, that gold that had no value is very valuable, and now that value is going to uh, be in the stock price. And now the stock is going to have to reflect the present value of all the money they're going to earn in the future mining and selling that gold. So it's, a, it's like, I think it's a great time to be buying these stocks, regardless of what exchange you buy them on. Uh, and again, get my fund. That way you get uh, Adrian Day, a manager, and you get a lot of diversification. Next question is uh, from the U.S., What's your take on the H-22 fair tax bill? Do you think it's a viable option? Uh, look, I you know, advocated the fair tax. I mean, it's certainly better than what we have right now. The fair tax is basically a national sales tax. And look, the worst possible way for the government to collect revenue, other than through inflation, right, which is what they're doing now, right, printing money, right, this is the most expensive way the most economically damaging way to an economy to pay for government is to have the central bank do it, right? So we, we're doing the worst thing that you possibly can do. I mean, politically, it's expedient to do that, uh, but it's literally the worst way to pay for government. The next worst way is probably the income tax, right? And a progressive income tax is worse than a flat tax. So if we're going to make the mistake of taxing income, let's at least have a flat tax where everybody pays the same amount. Right. And, and what I like about that, too, is I don't like voters paying for higher taxes that they themselves don't have to pay. Right. It's one thing to vote to tax somebody else, but it's a whole other thing to vote to tax yourself. 
So I think everybody should be subject to any tax. So if you're going to vote for higher taxes, you should have to pay a higher tax yourself. You shouldn't be able to vote for higher taxes that other people are paying, but you're avoiding, right? I don't like that, right? But I don't like taxing income at all, right? Why would you want to do that, right? There's an old economic adage that you get uh, less of what you tax and you get more of what you subsidize. Well, we want hard work. We want people to save and invest. Why tax that? Why discourage people from working and investing by putting a tax on it? Right. So what we should do is we should tax consumption. Right. Now, that doesn't mean that the rich people escape taxation because you have to consume your wealth. If all you do is earn a bunch of money and you never spend any of it. Well, I mean, why even tax you? You're like a benefactor. All you're doing is using your wealth uh, to grow the economy, to create goods, provide services, provide employment opportunities. But when rich people try to spend the money they've earned, then let them pay the tax, right? And since rich people spend more money than poor people, they will pay a higher tax than poor people, right? I mean, because they're going to buy more stuff. So you're still going to get more taxes from the rich, but you're going to tax them when they're spending their money, not when they're earning their money. So you don't want to discourage earning. Plus the other reason to favor a sales tax over a income tax is that it's very easy to pay the tax, right? You buy something, right? And there's a tax, right? Let's say there's a national sales tax that was 10%. I buy something for $100, I pay a $10 tax. It's real simple. I don't need a lawyer. I don't need a tax accountant. I don't need to keep books and records. You know, I mean, it costs the economy a fortune to comply with the income tax, right? All the record keeping and all the legal and services and accounting services, And all of that money and all of that time and effort spent complying with taxes diminishes economic productivity to say nothing of individual liberty, where now the government is spying on everybody and we've lost all of our rights uh, because the government wants to make sure that we're not evading the income tax. We'll just have a sales tax. It's easy to collect. It's simple to collect. Nobody has to fill out any forms. Nobody has to swear on the penalty of perjury or risk going to jail or all this stuff. And then you don't have to have all kinds of trusts and complicated uh, structures that people create to try to minimize their taxes. All of this is a waste. All the time and effort gone into avoiding taxes is, is, is effort and resources that can't go into producing goods and services. So you want to have uh, a tax that is very simple to collect and you want to focus it on consumption. The thing is, obviously, I don't think the government can collect as much revenue from those type of taxes as they do from income taxes, which is great because I don't want the government to correct all this revenue. But that means we need massive cuts in government spending. So if you want a fair tax, if you want a tax that doesn't cause you to give up your constitutional rights, right? Uh, then we have to have less government. We need cuts in government spending. But unfortunately, none of the advocates uh, uh, of the fair tax are talking about dramatic cuts to government spending because that's the only way it's going to work. Next question from Europe. What do you think about the monetary base rising faster than M2 during QE lowering the money multiplier? Uh, Why won't that cause deflation? Look, What the Fed is doing right now is massive inflation, right? It's not even about waiting for the inflation. We don't have to wait for anything. The inflation is here, right? What we're waiting for is the consequences of inflation to migrate 
from financial assets to consumer goods. That's going to happen. But if you wait for that to happen, it's too late to do anything about it. It's too late to protect your wealth. It's too late for the government to do anything about it, right? That's why they're supposed to be preemptive. They're not supposed to wait till they see the whites of inflation's eyes before they fire. They're supposed to anticipate the eyes and fire before, right? That's the whole idea. But now they're saying, oh, no, no, we don't want to do that. We're going to wait until the inflation genie is completely out of the bottle. And then, oh, yeah, it'll be really simple to put put her back in, which, of course, it's not. It's impossible uh, to do that, especially when you've inflated a bubble the size of the one that we have now, which is completely dependent on keeping interest rates at zero. How do you raise interest rates dramatically above zero to fight inflation once you've created an economy that's so addicted to keeping rates at zero? And how does the Federal Reserve go from the biggest buyer of treasuries and bonds to the biggest seller? How do they unwind this balance sheet? They could not even shrink a $4.5 trillion balance sheet before we started the hemorrhage in the fourth quarter of 2018. How are they going to shrink this balance sheet, which is already $7 trillion and rising? You know, by the time they finish this program, maybe we're going to have a $20 trillion balance sheet. How are they going to shrink that? And what are they going to shrink it to? $19 trillion? And then they're going to have to blow it up again? So no, I mean, it, deflation is not the problem. Uh, it's inflation. And it, the real problem is hyperinflation. That's the, that's the worst possible risk. Next question, uh, Todd uh, Perfito. Um, what do you expect shift bank? Wait, shift bank. I mean, you're talking about to hold deposits in gold in America. Okay, so this is when, when is my um, my uh, shift, uh, my Europe, Europe Pacific bank going to take Americans and have gold deposits? Hopefully by next year. Right. What I am hoping to do with Europe Pacific Bank is, A, I'm going to open it up to Americans. I mean, the whole purpose for me not allowing Americans initially was because I didn't want to be subjected to all the compliance costs of having Americans. But now I have those compliance costs anyway, even without Americans. I mean, the the amount of compliance that has come into the offshore banking industry since I first started is so enormous right? It's costing me a fortune to stay in business and I'm having to do all this stuff that I didn't want to do. Well, I mean, I might as well just take the Americans because there's so much compliance now uh, without having Americans that it's not really going to add anything. So I am going to be uh, taking Americans, but I'm still trying to get uh, uh, to be a direct issuer of uh, Visa or MasterCard or both. Um, there's still a few things I'm waiting with for, you know, with uh, with the Federal Reserve uh, that I need to get moving on. But hopefully a lot of this stuff will, uh, you know, come to fruition by the end of the year. Uh, the, the government, the shutdown, COVID-19 delayed me some more because, you know, people weren't working. Um, but hopefully by next year, Americans will be able to open up accounts at Euro Pacific Bank and they can denominate their accounts in any currency they choose, any major currency, or gold, right? And I would prefer to see my customers denominate their deposits in gold. But the bank will hold your, your gold just like it would hold your dollars or your euros, right? I would, I would, you know, just like any, like if you went to Bank of America and you open up an account and you have dollars, right, that, that you've actually loaned your money to Bank of America. They have your dollars, right? And now they, you know, you're, you're a creditor. Uh, your deposit is their liability. 
The same thing would happen at my bank. Uh, your deposit would be my liability, but I would hold your deposit in gold and credit your account that gold. So now you're basically banking gold, right? Which is, I, I, I have the URL bankergold.com is one of the ways I want to market it. But you're having a bank account where the, the currency for your account is gold bullion. And I've written that into our core banking software. And so now anything you do with that bank account is from gold, right? If you get a debit card and you use it, uh, you're spending your gold. And so whether you're using it in the US or whether you're using it in Europe or Asia, the gold will be sold to get the currency that you just spent, right? To buy something, right? If you want to send a wire, right? Gold would be liquidated to fund that wire in the currency that you're wiring. If you're doing a check, uh, you know, by, uh, you know, online, you know, you, we're not going to have physical checkbooks, but you'll be able to do that. Or if you're sending a third party, basically anything you could do with a bank account that's denominated in dollars, you could do the same thing with a bank account that's denominated in gold, right? Now, if you're going to spend your gold directly, right, while you're in the U.S., it would be like you're spending a foreign currency because gold is being viewed just as any other currency. So if you have dollars in your account and you buy something in the U.S. using your debit card, it doesn't have to do a foreign exchange because you have the dollars in your account and you're spending dollars. But if you go to Europe and you want to buy something in euros and you don't have any euros, all you have is dollars, well, then we know to sell the dollars to get the euros. Well, if all you have in your account is gold, any place that you spend it, no, people aren't accepting gold. Now, hopefully one day people will, and my bank will allow that. If you have an account at my bank and you want to sell a product and get paid in gold, and one of my bank customers is your customer, they can send gold directly to your account. And that would be great. I mean, I'd love to see more people transacting in gold, right? But since most merchants are not going to be uh, you know, selling for gold, they're going to want dollars or euros or you know, yen or wherever they happen to be. But you can use... Uh, the, the bank account to pay. And the, the reason that I'm going to be able to do this cost effectively is because I've got all the compliance costs anyway of being a bank. And it doesn't cost me any more to hold the deposits in gold than it does to hold them in any other currency. And I'm not subjected to any additional scrutiny. I have all the same regulatory procedures regardless of how I happen to store uh, my my client's deposit. So I, I think I'm going to be able to offer this service in a way that nobody else can do it uh, in a competitive way, in a cost-efficient way. And by the way, two people will be able to switch. So you don't have to, you can have your, your, your bank account, you can have some gold, you can have some dollars, you can have some euros, you can have some pounds, you can have a basket of currencies that would include gold and you can spend whichever one you want. So obviously most people, if they're smart, will spend all their fiat first and only when they run out of fiat will they start spending any of their gold. Uh, anyway, but just be on the lookout. I mean, I will let people know when, when this is up and running, fully up and running, uh, I will let everybody know uh, that the service is available and they can just go to the website, europacificbank.com and, uh, or, or europacbank.com and uh, open up an account. Uh, anyway, next question. Oh, oh, this is uh, from, was this Denmark? Thanks for the show. Got a portfolio of gold mining stocks and physical metal since I follow you for years. I'm well positioned. But when, how do I know when it's time to start selling? Now, I get this question a lot, right? People want to know 
when I should sell. And look, I, you know, obviously, you know, I made a big mistake with the benefit of hindsight. I had a lot of profits uh, in my gold stocks in 2011. I mean, crazy amounts of profits uh, that I left on the table. Because remember, back at the time, I expected gold prices to go a lot higher. I had expected the dollar to, to go lower. And so I wasn't selling a lot of my gold stocks. And then we had a big bear market. Now, what I did is I used the bear market to accumulate even larger positions than the ones I had before. Uh, and so now I'm in an even better position. But the question is, how do I know when to sell? Because clearly I, I, I didn't get it right last time. Although, you know, we weren't really big buyers at the highs and I didn't buy any stocks after they went up. I mean, I was fully positioned before the ride. So I kind of wrote it up, wrote it down. I mean, obviously there were people that didn't have any stocks before they went up and they piled in at the highs and then, you know, they sold out after the collapse and, and, and they got killed. Um, but this time, I think we're going to get the bigger move that I thought we would get last time, but that we didn't get because the Fed was successful in convincing everybody that it could shrink its balance sheet, that it could normalize interest rates. Uh, and everybody believed them. So I think we're going to get a much bigger move this time. But what I think I'm going to be waiting for before I really want to cash out, right, is some sign that we're changing course, that we're doing the right thing, that we're, we're turning off the monetary spigots, that we're swallowing the medicine, right? And things are going to be really bad. And I bet everybody's going to be buying gold. I mean, I'm not going to be considered crazy for buying gold. I mean, by the time I want to get rid of my gold stocks, every portfolio manager is going to own them. Right now, nobody owns them, right? Because they don't think you should. But when I really want to sell is when the idea of owning gold and gold stocks is mainstream. We never even got there in 2011, right? I think we're going to get there this time. Right. Where, you know, it's part of every portfolio. Everybody's going to need gold stocks. Everybody's going to want gold stocks. I mean, that's the way it was in 1980. Right. When that bull market ended in the early 80s. Right. But gold went from thirty five dollars an ounce to eight hundred and fifty. At the peak of that market, everybody wanted gold. Everybody wanted gold stocks. It was just a normal thing. You know, I remember I used to listen to this radio station in Florida. I'm trying to remember the, the, the station, what the name of the station was. It's still, still a big uh, FM music station uh, in Florida. But I remember they had a contest, right? You know, and these radio stations have contests all the time, right? You know, you, you know. But the winner got an ounce of gold, a gold coin. I mean, when was the last time an FM radio station gave out a, a, a one-ounce gold coin as a prize, Right. They did it back then because people knew everybody wanted gold in 1980 because of how much it had gone up. So when I'm going to sell is when you're going to have radio stations like that going to be doing contests where the winner gets, gets an ounce of gold. But I don't think we're anywhere near that. I don't think we're anywhere close to some type of mania in this sector uh, where everybody is buying. Uh, so I just think we right now we're going to go along for the ride and we'll try to figure out uh, when to sell uh, when the time is right. Yes, I missed it last time because of the head fake, because people believe the Fed. No one's going to believe the Fed. We're going to get the big move uh, that I thought we were going to get back then. And I guess the good news for me or people who follow my advice is because gold's going to go to 10,000 or 20,000 now, 
I'm going to end up making a lot more money than I would have made had it gone to 5,000 10 years ago because A, gold's going higher now and B, I have a much bigger position. I've been able to accumulate gold stocks for the last 10 years, right? So I'm in much better position now to profit uh, than I was back then. And I'm living in Puerto Rico, so I won't have to pay the capital gains tax, uh, which is even better. Um, let me see. Next question from Matt Hernandez. Peter, thanks for putting on your show. I made pretty good returns trading options on gold miners based on your advice. Can I pay you a commission of a gram of gold via gold money? Uh, yeah, you know, um, anybody can uh, send me money. I have a gold money account. And um, so people can send me money. I think you can just email it to me or text it to me, uh, a link. I forget exactly uh, how to do it, but I know it's possible that you could send me some money. It wouldn't be a commission. It would be a gift. But remember, my advice, I'm not advising people to buy options. I mean, I think gold's going to go up. And if you want to gamble on that and you do it in options, you can make money. Uh, my advice is to be more conservative, uh, to buy physical gold, uh, to buy the gold mining stocks, to get your leverage that way. But yeah, I mean, there's a lot of bang for the buck if you time it right when it comes to options. But gold money, uh, although I don't even think you could do the transfers now, I'm not even sure if Americans could do it. I mean, I keep, you know, I'm not up to date on all the compliance. That was the big problem at gold money was they had a very ambitious program and I really was on board with it. It would have been great. But what they didn't anticipate was the massive regulatory hurdles that they would be forced to clear. Because what gold money wants to do, technology is very simple. The technology is there, right? That's why all these guys that talk about Bitcoin, no, we don't need that. The technology that we have today makes it so you can transact in grams of gold. You can buy a pack of chewing gum and pay for it in gold. That's how small a unit you could break it down, right? It's very efficient. It's the government that is making it inefficient by design, right? So that's one of the things I'm hoping to overcome at my bank. But what I won't be able to do at my bank, I won't be able to have a platform where people can buy $50 worth of gold, $100 worth of gold. It is impossible. Gold money had the goal of doing that, right? They were going to allow people to have a $50 account, $100 account. And technologically, it's no problem. You could do it. But the compliance costs make it impossible. And they would make it impossible for me. My bank would lose money on a $50 account in order for me to even break even, let alone make a profit. And my bank is not in business to break even. I want to make a profit like every business. And so I have to charge my customers enough to make a profit. Well, the problem is I'd have to charge these small accounts so much that it wouldn't even be worthwhile for them to have an account. So there is going to be a point where I can charge a fee uh, that uh, is worthwhile to the client and, and I can make a profit, but it's not these tiny accounts. I'm not sure what the minimum is going to be to make sense, but it could be as low as five to $10,000, right? But that does leave people out. If people only have 500 bucks or a thousand bucks, they can't have the account, right? Because it's just not large enough uh, for me to be able to charge a fee to overcome the regulatory costs that are required to offer the service. Um, next question. Oh, here's a $100 one. All right, this, uh, this is a big question here. Um, this comes from Summertime 2413. Um, hi, love your takes. I'm investing in silver equities. 
uh, Mag Silver, um, First Majestic. When the S&P crashed, will these get brought down with it uh, like in March? Look, all the stocks went down in March. The gold stocks went down. In fact, they went down more than the non-gold stocks. And I was on this podcast pounding the table, telling people, buy these stocks. They're throwing the baby out with the bathwater. For whatever reason, people were making huge mistakes selling their gold stocks. Now, obviously, there were some people that had no choice. They had margin calls. They had to sell. But the people who were choosing to sell because they were panicking were making mistakes. And I know I had clients that wanted to make those mistakes. Many clients, I was able to talk them off the ledge and they didn't sell. Uh, And there are some that did. And some of the stocks that I own, some of these silver stocks are almost triple. If you look at what the low was, I think it was March 23rd, my birthday in the morning, right? The morning after the Fed cut rates to zero, there are stocks that have almost tripled from where people sold them back in March, right? If you're really bad for the people who sold, the people who bought, you know, got a gift, right? So if we have another big crash, it is possible that the gold and silver stocks will go down again. I just don't think they'll go down nearly as much as they went down last time. And I think they'll bounce back. But they might not even fall. A lot of it might depend on what's happening with the dollar and what's happening with the price of gold. Because initially, right, we got a drop in the price of gold too. But if we get a big move up in gold, if we get a drop in the dollar, then I don't care what's happening to the stock market. Even if the stock market crashes, my bet is that gold gold stocks go up. So I would just buy them. Don't worry about the stock market crashing because if it does and if it temporarily drags down your gold stocks, it's no big deal. Just buy more if you have the cash. Next question um, from Gary M. If you're predicting a collapsing dollar is correct, if your prediction of collapsing dollar is correct, is it not counterintuitive to invest in U.S. gold stocks? Uh, Will gains not be wiped out? Of course they won't be wiped out. If the dollar crashes, your gold stocks are going to soar in value. Now, look, even if the dollar loses, let's say the dollar loses 90% of its value. Well, now your gold stocks, I mean, they'll go up a lot more than tenfold, I think. But when you sell them, you're going to get a lot more dollars, 10 times as many, 100 times as many. So, you know, the dollar crash doesn't take away your profits because you're going to have bigger dollar profits. So you'll get a lot more dollars that have a lot less value. Now, if the dollar ends up having no value, if it gets completely wiped out, well, then obviously you're not going to sell your gold stocks for dollars. You're going to sell them for whatever replaces the dollar, right? But my guess is that the dollar is not going to go away. I think eventually the dollar is going to be backed by gold again, just like all the other currencies. And so maybe when you sell your gold stocks, you'll do it for gold, for dollars that are now backed by gold. But you're going to end up with a lot more dollars than you'd have now because the value of those gold stocks is going to go way up. The dollar is just how we price them. The value is independent of that price, right? Because it's just a measure of what it's worth in terms of the dollar. But the dollar could lose a lot of value. And so now you would get many more of them uh, when you go to sell your gold stocks or when you get a dividend on your gold stocks. Your dividends will be uh, with a mu- for much more dollars. You'll get a lot more dollars in your dividends that now have less value, but now you've got a lot more of them. So now you can afford to buy stuff. Next question. Um, Should I choose junior mining ETFs or junior individual companies because of the swap lines that are the safe? Yeah, you know, there was there was I mentioned this video uh, about, you know, uh, 
uh, the risk of being in countries that don't have swap lines with the Fed? And are these countries going to have an economic problem? Uh, are they going to have to nationalize the mines? Look, I, I just thought that that warning was more to sell newsletters. Uh, I don't think it's that uh, much of a concern. Uh, and so I would ignore it. But I, I don't recommend the ETFs. I recommend my fund, right? When you're buying an ETF, you're buying everything. You're buying a basket. I just think that Adrian Day, who manages my gold fund, with his experience and his knowledge of this industry, knowing the players, knowing the companies, knowing the management teams, knowing the mines, I think that he is going to give us a better portfolio. You know, there's, you know, people talk about the efficient market hypothesis, right? All the information is out there. There's no point in trying to beat the market because everybody has the same information. I don't think that's true. Certainly not when it comes to gold stocks. I think there's a lot of people that don't know anything about gold stocks who are managing gold funds. I don't think the best and the brightest have gone into gold, right? They've gone into other sectors. And very few people have the experience and know-how that Adrian Day does. That's why I hired him. So I don't think it makes sense to just buy everything. I think if you've got a smart guy that knows the industry, he knows what to buy and he knows what to avoid. So I think it's worth paying a little bit extra to get a great portfolio than to just get a mediocre portfolio, buying the good stocks, but also buying the bad stocks, right? Just, you know, so don't buy the ETF, just buy my fund or have an account set up with me that we manage account for you of individual gold stocks. We create your own gold portfolio in your account of junior miners and some of the senior producers and some of the royalty companies and create a very powerful managed portfolio in the best gold stocks. And hopefully we end up uh, uh, ignoring or avoiding the worst ones. Um, next question comes from the UK. Uh, Backpack Tennis is the guy's name. Um, Hi, Peter. Is there any private ownership shares in central banks? Um, well, look, I mean, the, the, the Fed is a private bank, banking syndicate, right? I mean, it's not part of the government officially, even though they de facto uh, operate as if they were a branch of the government. They're not. In fact, if you get a letter from the Federal Reserve, you'll notice that there's a stamp on it. Why? I mean, they can't frank it. You get a letter from a government agency or department, they don't buy a stamp. But the Federal Reserve is private. They have to buy a, they have to buy a stamp. In fact, the way the Federal Reserve works, they generate a profit, but then they pay 100% tax on the profit that exceeds a set amount. I forget what that is. It might be like 5% or 4%. I forget the profit that they're allowed to make. But everything above that, and they earn a profit, you know, by collecting interest on their bond portfolio or whatever, but they have to pay 100% tax, which is one of the reasons that these guys are spendthrifts. I mean, you look at that building. I mean, have you ever seen an image? Go Google it on YouTube. The Federal Reserve building is a beautiful building. It is the most expensive building in Washington, D.C. They spared no expense because it was all deductible, right? It, it came against their profits, right? So they had, an in, they had a vested interest in the most expensive, the most lavish building they could make because if they didn't spend the money, they were going to have to give it to the taxpayer, give it to the government. So it is the most over-the-top uh, building in Washington. Uh, but yeah, I mean, they are, they are private, but there's no way to buy stock in the Federal Reserve. I mean, the, the, the stockholders are set a long time ago and there's no way to, to, to buy shares. 
Next question. Silver Corp Metals is based in Vancouver and is China's largest silver producer. Why don't we hear about the miners and could China take uh, mines over? Look, I've owned a Silver Corp Metals. I mean, I don't, you know, really talk about uh, individual stocks. It's not one of our, you know, favorite names in that space. We do have some stocks that we like the best. I mean, in fact, talk to your Pacific Capital Brokers. Uh, about uh, the stocks that I personally like the best. I don't give recommendations on the podcast because of the regulators, but you can get them from my broker, brokers at Europe Pacific Capital. And we do have some silver stocks in the portfolio of the Europe Pacific uh, Gold Fund. But China is a big gold producer now. In fact, they're the biggest and they don't export any of it. I mean, they keep all the gold that they, that they produce. So I think that the Chinese have been underestimating the amount of gold that they have. I think they have more gold than they let on. And I think they're going to continue to be big buyers of gold uh, as the price moves up. Uh, next question from Joseph Sullivan. Um, the funny thing is most blue states support red states with federal tax dollars. Florida and Texas are the only red states paying their own bills. If they leave, they will have to raise taxes to pay their own bills. Uh, yeah, I mean, if you actually look at the dynamics of some of these big blue states like uh, California and New York, because there are a lot of very high income people in those states paying big taxes, that these states are actually paying more in taxes than their citizens are collecting in benefits. I mean, that's true. Um, but uh, if a lot of the, um, if a state, were to secede, right, from the union, if, uh, assuming that was possible, and they no longer had to pay any federal income tax, I think that state would be, you know, their economy would be so much stronger without having to comply with all the federal taxes and federal regulations that they wouldn't need uh, all the uh, government money that they get, right? And a lot of that government money hurts the economy, right? Because the government is sending money where it wants it in ways that are not efficient, right? We always want the market allocating resources so that resources go to where they're most efficiently used. And we want people who are uh, increasing uh, the economy, who are contributing the most to make the most. We don't want the government deciding uh, who gets the money, which is what's happening. So I think all of these red states that are actually net recipients of government money, they get more in federal dollars than they pay out. Um, all of those federal dollars, those taxes and the money they're getting back is undermining their economies. And their economies would be far more prosperous, they would be far wealthier if the federal government got out of the, out of the picture completely, right? But the reason that these uh, states are paying so much in is because they have all these rich people. But a lot of these rich people are going to be moving out, right? Look, I mentioned Joe Rogan uh, earlier. Like, he's talking about moving to Texas. I think maybe he will. I mean, I don't know. I mean, maybe it'll be harder for him to get some of the guests. I mean, maybe there's not as many people in Texas as Southern California that come into the studio. But look, Elon Musk is talking about moving out of California now and taking those jobs. So if more wealthy entrepreneurs move out of these uh, blue states into the red states, then those dynamics are going to completely shift. Next question from Mike Phillips from the U.S. Peter, for 30-something with 500K to invest, 
uh, would your allocation percentage be to gold, gold stocks, emerging markets, international bonds, U.S. stocks? Um, look, there's a lot of information I don't have about you. Uh, I got, you know, your age approximately and how much you have to invest, but I don't know the rest of your uh, portfolio or the rest of your net worth, what your actual income is. Um, and, and so I, I can't just blanketly say what you should do with that 500,000. But yes, I mean, you should definitely have a good, healthy allocation to gold and gold mining stocks. I mean, more so now than you would normally have because of the tremendous upside potential that is in that sector based on what the Fed is doing now and based on what the Fed is going to do in the future. But you never want to put all your eggs in one basket. You do want to have some exposure to the emerging markets, which I think are very, very cheap. You want to have uh, money in good dividend paying foreign stocks. I mean, there is a balance that you can strike. I mean, the, the good thing about a lot of these foreign stocks that I'm buying is that even if I'm completely wrong about all the bad things that I think are going to happen in the U.S., it doesn't mean that you lose money on these foreign stocks. I mean, I think foreign stocks are very inexpensive. Just, you know, just looking at them on evaluation terms relative to the U.S. market, they've underperformed for a decade. I mean, foreign stocks did great in the first decade of this century. Uh, and American stocks did horrible. Uh, the next decade, American stocks did great. Foreign stocks did poorly. I think we flipped again, and I think we're starting a big decade for international investing, uh, commodities, emerging markets, precious metals. So exactly what I've been doing, uh, this is now the time for it. So yeah, I mean, we could build a very good portfolio for you. I mean, I would set up a managed account. You know, the managed account minimum uh, separately managed accounts at Europe Pacific Capital is $250,000. So with $500,000 to invest, you've got more than enough to meet that minimum. So my suggestion is to go to Europe Pacific Capital website and speak to a broker and, you know, get a more personal, uh, you know, recommendation based on the additional information that you'd be able to share with a representative. Uh, so yeah, I mean, europac.com is the website. Go there and, you know, give us a call. Appreciate it. Uh, next question, Smash Bros Brawl. Would you say that the S&P 500 and artificially inflated home equity are de facto government retirement vehicles, therefore not allowed to go down? Well, I do believe that the government is trying to prop up asset prices as a matter of policy, right? Remember, this entire recovery, right, was... Um, was built on the foundation of an asset bubble by design, right? That was the whole idea. I mean, Ben Bernanke laid it out, right? We're going to make real estate prices go up. We're going to make stock prices go up. And as a result of that, people are going to spend more money, right? We're going to create all this paper wealth, which, you know, I, that's exactly how we got into trouble. It was all the phony wealth of the real estate bubble that caused the financial crisis when all that wealth vanished. And all the people stopped making their mortgage payment. But the Fed was just, all right, well, let's just inflate a bigger bubble because that's all they know how to do. They have no stomach for a real recovery. So we just went back to another bubble because politically that was the one uh, that was the easiest uh, path to go down. And, and so, yes, of course, they are targeting asset prices. That's why when the stock market goes down, the Fed cuts rates. The Fed goes back to QE. So they're trying to keep the real estate market up. They're trying to keep the stock market up. 
but they're damaging the economy in the process, which ultimately is undermining the value of stocks and real estate that they're trying to prop up. So the more they try to artificially prop up asset prices, the more real value they destroy of the assets that they're propping up. So eventually the whole thing comes tumbling down, either in reality or in real terms because we have hyperinflation, because the dollar crashes. Instead of the asset prices going down, the value of the dollar that they're priced in goes down. And the result is the same. You get wiped out, right? Instead of you know having less money, you have more money, but you can buy less stuff with it. And that's where we're headed. Um, next question. I'm in my 20s. I do not have a lot of money to buy gold. Is there anything I can do to set myself up to succeed? Well, I don't know how much money you have. You could buy silver. Uh, but, you know, if you don't have much money, look, you don't have anything to lose, right? Other than the value of your wages. But if you're spending all your wages as you earn them, well, you know, you're not going to get wiped out to inflation. In fact, if you have some debt, uh, then your debt will get wiped out. I mean, you end up suffering because you're living in a poorer country. Uh, but as an individual, the people who have the most to lose are the people who have the most savings, the people who have the financial assets that are going to be wiped out. I mean, one of the things I, I have advocated for people who don't have a lot of money uh, is just to stock up on stuff, right? I mean, if you have an extra $100 or $200, there's no point in saving it. Just buy more stuff, right? I mean, stuff that you're going to need, like buy more food, buy more supplies, buy things that you're going to need to buy in the future. If you got extra cash, just buy those things now and store them in a closet somewhere. Uh, because if you when you go to buy them in the future, they're going to be more expensive. That's just the reality. Or they may not even be available, right? There are a lot of products that you might not even be able to buy. Uh, so stock up on those. Um, next question. Been watching, listening, and reading you since 2007. Thanks for opening my eyes. It's changed my life for the better. Keep up the great work. Oh, okay. That's just a compliment. I appreciate that. Uh, Zelbach Pike. That's an interesting, weird name. But anyway, thanks for the compliment. Up, oh, that's the next one too. It's just a compliment. Guy paid me ten dollars. Thank you for what you're doing. Thanks for the ten bucks. That is Tio. Next question is Chelsea um, from the UK. How can I convince my family to buy gold? They think their money in the bank is safe, and they aren't willing to buy gold unless I say I will guarantee that they won't lose. Yeah, you know I get that too. If people say, "Hey, well, will you will you guarantee me that I don't lose money?" Of course, how can I guarantee that you won't lose money? Right. Anybody looking for a guarantee, there are no guarantees, right? The only way I can guarantee that you don't lose money is don't invest it, right? Keep it in, you know, take your dollars and put them under your mattress or your, or your pounds if you're in the UK and you won't lose them most likely. I mean, it's possible you could still lose them. Somebody could steal them, uh, but you know, you won't lose them, but there's no guarantee that the money has any value. That is the problem. So there's no guarantees in anything. Even the things that people think are safe are not safe. So what people have to decide is what risks do they want to take? So if you own gold, you risk the value of gold going down. If you own dollars or pounds, you risk the value of pounds going down. Now, in my mind, the odds of the dollar or the pound losing value are much greater than the odds of gold losing value. Now, obviously, you know, in a very short time horizon, a day, a week, or month, 
then maybe the odds are greater that gold loses value than dollars or pounds. But as you go into a longer time horizon, I think the overwhelming odds favor gold. After all, the supply of gold is increasing very slowly. The supply of dollars or other currencies is increasing very rapidly and will likely increase even more rapidly in the future. So you have a depreciating asset, and now you have central banks that have told you, right? They're telling your parents, we want our currency to lose value. We want prices to go up. We guarantee that you'll lose. See, your family wants you to guarantee that you won't lose money if you buy gold, but the central banks, the Bank of England, the Federal Reserve is already guaranteeing you that if you hold their currency, you will lose money by design. They want you to lose. It's a sure thing. If you hold fiat currency, you are guaranteed to lose. So if you don't want that, if you don't want to lose your money for sure, then you got to do something else with it, right? And let them know, hey, gold is a much better alternative, right? And just look at the history. Just show them a history, a long-term chart. You know, you there's a long history of the, of the pound, right, in terms of gold. You can go back hundreds of years and you can see a beautiful long-term trend of the British pound losing value relative to gold. So what do you think? Is that trend going to continue or is that trend going to change, right? I think a trend that's been going on for hundreds of years is likely to continue, not change. And if you want to bet on the trend continuing, then you bet on gold. If you think the trend's going to change, then you can bet on the pound. But if you look at what's been driving the pound and other currencies lower, it's, it's even more now, right? What governments and central banks were doing to destroy the value of their currencies, they're doing more of it now. So now they're going to succeed in destroying even more value even quicker. So the case for gold has never been stronger than it is right now. Next question is from Europe. Do you have a real example of a successful country, both for people and businesses that has a small government? Well, look, yes. I mean, you could look now at countries that have less government, right? Look at Singapore, right? Look at Hong Kong or look at even uh, countries that have gone from a lot of government to less government like New Zealand, right? Or look at countries where the countries have been split, where you have the same culture, the same people, but you split it, right? Look what happened when we had West Germany and East Germany, right? Look at Taiwan, versus mainland China, when mainland China was really communist. Or look at Hong Kong uh, versus, versus China. Look at North and South uh, Korea. Look at Vietnam when you had, you know, uh, you have all these examples where you take a culture of people that are identical in every way, and then you separate them, and, and, and one group has a socialist economy with more government, and then one group has a freer economy with less government. It's always the freer people that prosper. The less government you have, the more prosperous you are. Look at all these countries that rank really high in economic freedom. They're the wealthy countries. Look at the countries that are at the bottom of the list when it comes to economic freedom. They are among the poorest countries in the world. So there is a direct relationship between the amount of government and the amount of wealth, right? The less government, the more freedom. The less government, the more prosperous uh, people are. And then you can look at countries and you can look at how they've evolved. Countries have gone from a lot of government to less government or from a little bit of government to a lot more government. And they always do better when they have less government. 
right? So as they shrink government, prosperity grows. As they grow government, prosperity shrinks. Uh, and it's amazing how few people can learn such a simple lesson. And that's because all the politicians, they have a vested interest in not learning that lesson because they get elected promising more government, promising nothing, something for nothing. So they ignore uh, the lessons in, of history. And that's why we constantly repeat those mistakes. Okay, I'm finally at the last question. Okay, um, do you think the government will ever enact Executive Order 6102 again if gold-silver prices rise? Is it possible that the government will confiscate gold again? And what recourse should we do? What will that do to gold mining stocks? Look, I mean, obviously, there is a lot of uh, concern about government confiscation. Uh, Roosevelt did it in 1933. But first of all, again, you got to remember why Roosevelt confiscated gold. Roosevelt wanted to devalue the dollar because before Roosevelt confiscated gold, uh, it, it was twenty dollars uh, an ounce, right? So you need you, each ounce of gold. You, you could buy an ounce of gold for twenty dollars, and Roosevelt wanted to, to devalue the dollar. But before he could do that, he had to get everybody's gold. So. The executive order, everybody turn in your gold, right? And if you're a patriot, you're going to turn in your gold. Now, some people didn't turn in their gold. Nothing really happened to them, right? It was kind of like an honor system. Yes, there were penalties, criminal penalties for not turning in your gold. But look, you know, there are people like if there's gun control, there are people that don't turn in their guns. They don't want to turn them in. And now they're a lawbreaker. So there were lawbreakers who resisted uh, really an unconstitutional order uh, to surrender their gold. But once Roosevelt took all the gold, then he devalued the dollar. And now all of a sudden you needed $35 to get an ounce of gold, right? So the, the, the impetus for the seizure was the devaluation. Now, the government doesn't have to do that anymore. We're not on a gold standard. The, the dollar has no value. So it, they could just print as many as they want. So the reasons that existed to confiscate gold in 1933 don't exist today. Uh, so gold will not be confiscated again for the reasons that it was confiscated back then. Now, that doesn't mean it won't happen. It just wouldn't happen for the same reason. Now, a reason that the government might seize gold would be the dollar is crashing, right? I mean, the dollar has collapsed. There's hyperinflation. It's basically worthless, right? And so now, no matter how much money the government prints, they can't buy anything with it, right? So now the government needs real money. They need foreign exchange. They need gold, right? Because they, you know, they got to pay the, the, the workers. They got to pay the soldiers, right? Whatever. So maybe they seize your gold because they're broke. It's like a national emergency and they're kind of requisitioning your property. They're seizing your property. But if the government resorts to seizing property, they probably won't just seize gold. They'll probably seize other assets. I mean, they'll probably seize your bank accounts, especially if they're in foreign currencies. They'll seize those. They might seize other assets. They might start seizing stocks because gold is hard to find, right? The, the easiest thing for the government to seize is the stuff that it can easily get at, right? The stuff in your bank accounts, the stuff in your brokerage accounts. That's easy to seize. They can take that whenever they want. Seizing the gold that you have stored in your house, that's hard to get. 
Because what if you don't turn it in? See, they can easily get the banks to give them your foreign deposits. They can get brokerage firms to give them your stocks because, hey, I mean, they don't give a damn. It's not their money. They just do whatever the government says. The government says, hey, give us all the stocks in this brokerage account. Where do you want to send? I mean, they all these businesses do everything the government says. If they don't, the government shuts them down, right? Uh, so it's actually going to be harder to seize your gold. Now, if you have your gold stored with a third party, then they might be able to get the third party to, to turn it over. But if you have the gold yourself, they're not going to get it unless you give it to them, which you, how are they going to make you do it? How are they going to know that you have it? Right? Not, are they going to send government troops to everybody's house to shake you down and see if you have gold? I mean, even if they had a record that you bought it, they don't know that you still have it. It's gone. I lost it. I gave it away. I spent whatever. I mean, I don't know. I don't have it anymore. You know, uh, and they're not even going to have, you know, when you buy gold, I mean, all these gold companies, they're not required to keep records. It's not like a securities firm. I mean, there aren't a lot of records. You go to ship gold, you buy some gold. I mean, there's, you know, we don't have to keep records of what you bought. We're supposed to keep records of what you sell because we're supposed to tell the government something's been sold, I think, and here, you know, we paid out money to so-and-so. But when you just buy some gold coins, you're not required to report that. I mean, there's no records. And that's, you know, people go into coin shops, you know, they, and they, they go in, they buy a gold coin. There's no record. They walk out. They, you know, it's like you're buying a product, right? When you're buying gold, you're buying a product. It's like going to a grocery store and buying food. They don't, you know, the government doesn't, they don't have to report uh, that you bought these items. So when you make a purchase, when you purchase some gold, I mean, you just bought something. Uh, so the reality is seizing gold is going to be a lot more difficult than a lot of other assets that are going to be the low hanging fruit that the U.S. government might seize. And they might look, we could have exchange controls. The government could do all sorts of things when there's a monetary crisis. See, right now they don't have to. They just print money. Right, because the money they're printing still buys things. The dollar hasn't fallen yet. So they don't need our taxes. They don't need our assets. They can keep printing money. Once the money they're printing doesn't have any value anymore, that's when they need our stuff. And that's when you have to worry about the government seizing stuff. But I think the thing that they're least likely to, to seize successfully is your gold. Now, what would that mean to gold miners? Yeah, if the government started seizing the gold from the mining companies, uh, yeah, they can get the mines in the U.S. They're not going to be able to seize the gold that's mined in Canada or the gold that's mined in Central America or Australia or any place else. So, yes, that could potentially put the deposits of gold mining companies in the U.S. at risk, right? Which is why I think the political risk in the United States is being understated, right? Somebody asked a question earlier about, uh, you know, should you invest in mines that are in countries that don't have swap lines with the U.S. Federal Reserve, you know, because of the political risk. I think that there's a lot of political risk in the United States, not just for gold companies, but for all companies, right? Because when, you know, they can't just print money anymore, they're going to start seizing stuff. They're going to start nationalizing stuff. <clears throat> and so there is a lot of political risk in all sorts of assets, here in the United States. Anyway, that's it for today's podcast. Have a great weekend, everybody. And I will be back again next week with more of the Peter Schiff Show podcast. Mm-hmm.